thing for you. Uh, this week we have a pretty big deal here at Castle Oaks. We had uh, Operation Christmas Child going on all weekend. So Friday night we had Wealth Spring and the crew here at Club 21 packing boxes. And then we had, I don't know, another 40 or something like that packing boxes all day yesterday. And I think we get maybe close to 900 boxes. Is that right? Which is, I don't know, it's like a record or something. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty great. Yeah, yeah we're excited about that. We, we, yeah, you can clap for that. Yeah, yeah. We loved, when the boys were growing up, we loved Operation Christmas Child because we were looking all the time for the kinds of activities and ways to engage our boys, especially around the fall of the year as we move toward the holidays, uh, that would have them thinking about other people and have them thinking about the needs of others. As a dad, a young dad, when the boys were born, the thing I look forward to more than anything else was Christmas. You know, they're little babies of us. And I love Christmas. I love Christmas. But then to share Christmas with them, which is so exciting. But then they were just babies. And I was like, well, this is all right. And, you know, I love babies hard that far. And, and so I, I can't wait till I get them toys that I can play with. And I remember my dad doing this when I was growing up. You know, him playing with my toys and us getting to play together and put things together. It was just a blast. But I loved, loved it when the boys got old enough to talk and put things together. We bought Legos. And of course, you know, we're buying the great big Legos. And those are fine, but then we get the real Legos. And so we would now engage with the boys. And, and Christmas was as fun for me as I've ever grown up um, as it was for them. And this is the best part of it. And then getting sort of the dark side of Christmas that we realized was a big deal for our boys. And it happened slowly but surely every year. And uh, it happened infrequently enough that we were almost always caught off guard by it. But here's what would occur. You know, we have Thanksgiving and you know, gifts, of course, and just this sense of celebration and fun and food and all the things that are going on. But then Christmas, and I'm not sure so that we have to make lists and, you know, Requests and Christmas, of course, is all about the birth of Jesus, but a whole lot about gifts. And what am I going to get? And so we have struggled as followers of Jesus and parents of these two boys trying to figure out how to balance this. And there was almost no way to balance it, we found, especially when we would pack the boys and head over to the grandparents' place. And so I don't know if you can be there or not. I'm this. And we come, and other grandkids would come, and there was this big bag, just this massive bag for each of the grandkids. And each of them had, I don't know, a dozen gifts. It was like the Christmas that never ended. And they would reach into the bag, and they would pull something else out. It was amazing and big, and lights and shiny and new batteries and put together and all this kind of stuff. And by the time we were done, they were like, you know, look at the bag, and they're like, is, is that it? Because there's a pile next to them, and all day long they've been pulling these gifts out of the bag. Now, Carter, our youngest, his birthday is January 12th. And so we have gone through the holidays, they've been, you know, off to school and they've gotten gifts, and he knows in the back of his mind there's more coming. And so one year, he had just this in between Christmas and his birthday, just this colossal, self induced, Selfish meltdown. And it was, you know, if you are a parent, you've seen your kids do this. They just completely turn inward and turn into a complete demon. And it's just the worst thing ever. Of course, you know, we're new parents. 
gratitude. This was our hope. It would change his heart. And of course, this would be in itself every Christmas to some degree. And it was then that we began to realize, and I began to piece together some truths about gratitude. How could it be that gratitude would be elusive in the presence of blessing? Seems like logic would say that if you have more, you would have a sense of more thankfulness, more gratitude. But why is it that it's almost inverse? How can that be? And so, what is gratitude about? And what causes it? And there's some incredible science that comes out. And psychologists and psychiatrists begin to research the power of gratitude and really the, the roots of it, where it comes from, and how it acts and how it behaves. But of course, psychology, the stuff we read and understand today, all it does is represent the truth that is eternal and has always been the truth of Scripture. And so, as we jump into this little story in Luke chapter 17, it's all about gratitude and where it comes from. And most of us, most of us on a daily basis completely misunderstand the nature of gratitude, the power of it, where it comes from, and how it works. And we do this to our own detriment. And it deeply affects our walk with God. And it completely upends our relationships with each other. And so we'll jump into the story, but there's a lot of depth to it, even though it's a short story, and it's only found in the Gospel of Luke. Here's how it begins. Now, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and this happens in all four Gospels. Jesus is out doing his ministry, and eventually, this is in Luke 17, it's toward the end of his ministry, Jesus begins to make his way towards Jerusalem. He's headed toward a confrontation with the religious leaders. He's eventually going to experience the, the cross. And this is the path that he walks. And don't miss it because it's foundational to not just your faith, but also our understanding of how gratitude works. Jesus is, and Luke is very intentional about this. He's a historian. He's a physician. Jesus is on his way. He's set a course. He's got his compass. He's set his coordinates. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows why he's going there. Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he's making this journey, as he begins to travel this direction, here's what happens. As he was going into a village, there were ten men who had leprosy. Now, this, this word leprosy is a little complex. It, it doesn't mean necessarily leprosy. It means really any skin disease that is unknown or a concern or invisible or an issue that somebody would say, hey, what's that? You know, what what you got going on there? And kind of back up a bit, you know, I have no idea what that is, which means we need to give you a little bit of space. Leprosy was a broad term for an issue that needs to be dealt with when the ten men were together. The reason they were together is because the law Law has a lot to say. The Old Testament law, Leviticus, Book of Numbers, has a lot to say about skin diseases. In fact, we'll take a look in just a moment, but it's the reason they were together, it's the reason they were separate. They stood at a distance, they knew they couldn't come close to any. 
is key and is important. This isn't the only time that Jesus deals with a leper in the Gospels. There's another time. This story is only in Luke, but the other story is in a couple of the other Gospels as well. And it comes very early near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And to understand Jesus and how he would interact with a leper or how he would interact with anybody who had any sort of visible skin disease, then you have to understand the nature of the Old Testament law. And really, a lot of the law is about this. The law introduces two ideas that, that they were new to Israel and they applied to us, and Jesus talks about it a lot in the Gospels. And it's about this issue of things that are clean and things that are unclean. Say it with me, things that are clean and things that are unclean. Now, when I was growing up, we get ready to eat dinner, and Mom would say, before we eat dinner, it's time for you to what? Wash your hands. And I would go to the sink and splash water around a second. And then I would come to her and say, I'm ready to eat. And she would say, let me see here. And I would show her my hands. And she would say, go wash them again. That's right. Because I, I was not, I was not, what? I was. Now, we think this means dirty. It doesn't mean dirty. It applies, and it, of course, is relevant. But these ideas of clean and unclean mean very different things to the Old Testament law and to Jewish men and women. When my boys were, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old, and their hormones were more advanced in their hygiene, Martin would sit down next to me and I would say, dude, you are unclean. And I don't know why the 12-year-olds are allergic to showers and soap and all of these kinds of things, but we can smell either of them coming a long way away. And they were, to us, they were unclean. And that's not what the Old Testament is about. When you read the book of Leviticus, you'll find yourself reading some pretty interesting things. In fact, do this. At Thanksgiving dinner, when you sit down with your family, just say, I would like to share a little devotional thought with you. And so I would like to read a portion of Leviticus. And so just open up your Bible to Leviticus 13 and just start at the beginning. Okay? And just let the silence fall over the room as you read these words. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, if, any ha- if anyone has a swelling or a rash or a discolored skin that might develop into a serious skin disease, that person must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of the sons. The priest will examine the affected area. Aren't you so glad we're in the New Testament? I am. I am. I want nothing to do with any of your rashes, just to be clear about that. And if there is hair in the affected area and it has turned white, the problem appears to be more than skin deep. Let's be honest, all of our problems are more than skin deep. It is a serious skin disease. And the priest who examines it must pronounce the person ceremonially, what? Unclean. They are unclean. Now, you'll continue to read Leviticus 13. And some of you will, just because you're that weird. And you'll go back to it and read it again. And it's absolutely incredible. And here's what you'll think. You'll think this is the most irrelevant thing I've ever read. But the truth is, there couldn't be a more relevant passage of Scripture for me and you and our understanding of who Jesus is and what God is up to. Why in the world would God say all of this about what it means to be clean and unclean? And what is going on? And, and what does that have to do with us? And of course, as we get ready to talk about these ten lepers and even this one leper that's earlier in the book of Luke, it is deeply relevant because it has to do with what kind of God we 
said, you must live away. In fact, it says in the same chapter I started the business, that if you find out that you have a skin disease, that you have to do a couple of things. Actually, three. Tear your clothes. Don't pull your hair. And when you get near anyone, you have to say, what? I'm unclean. That's right. So that nobody gets near you or touches you. You have to avoid anyone that's unclean. And this is why this man says, I want you to make me clean. Now, take a pause for a minute. We have the same perspective about people in our culture, about people that we interact with. And to find out who you think is unclean, all you have to do is answer this one simple question. Who do you avoid? Who do you steal clear from? The loud, the obnoxious, different socioeconomic class. Who is it that you avoid? These are the people that you feel like are unclean. Well, we don't use that language. But they're folks that we feel bronze. Just a little bit better than. It's the same thing that's happening with Jesus, the lepers, the Old Testament law. And so, this man falls in front of Jesus, and now the Lord Jesus says, Jesus alone. Reach out his hand and his love. In that moment, Jesus is unclean. Jesus is unclean, except that when Jesus touches him, he no longer has any leprosy. So the man is clean, and so is Jesus. In fact, Luke will want to say this. Jesus reached out his hand. I am willing, Jesus said, and then he gives him this directive, be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. So here's what I want you to catch, I want you to understand this. When we talk about clean or unclean, what it means to be dirty before God or sinful before God, and we know what it means to be clean and pure before God, 
forgiveness of sin you did last Wednesday, whatever you did yesterday, and whatever you're going to do this afternoon, he makes you clean. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then odds are sometime in your life, maybe in recent history or long ago, somebody made you feel unclean because of who you were, what you did, what you thought, or the secret you kept. And the way that they made you feel unclean was to drag you back into an understanding of the law. What Jesus makes clean is always clean. What Jesus redeems is always his. When Jesus cleans it, it's clean today and it's clean tomorrow. Now the beauty and the power of this is that it reverses the curse of the law. And it reverses all that would happen that sin would break into the world. All of it undone. And so you have maybe a history of some religious baggages that you stuck. But maybe the truth that you need to understand is that Jesus has made you clean. Not clean is not a part of your story anymore. In other words, of course, you have to go show yourself to the priest. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. We have a high priest. And he stands in the gap for me and for you. So back to the story. Here's what occurred. He's going to the village. How many men? They're all together. They're hanging out. They're hanging out because they're all sick. And they're together because they're all sick. And they're together because they have each other as a family. In fact, the truth is, there's probably Jews and Gentiles. There's probably some local people. There's probably some from the distance. We learned that one of them is, in fact, a Samaritan. So he kind of bridges the gap between Jew and Gentile. And these ten men are friends. They're not friends because they like each other. They're not friends because they have family together. They're friends because they have the same problem, the same disease. That's why they're hanging out. And so to the distance, Jesus had pity on us, and here's what Jesus says. When he saw them, he said, go and show yourself to the priests. The only reason why somebody who is sick or has been ostracized or kicked out of the community because of an illness or being unclean, the only reason you would go to the priest is when you know that that problem is solved. This issue is taken care of. It's time now to... You know, kind of get my entry card back into society, back into my family, back into my community. I can go home now. And Jesus says, 
was healed. Came back, praised to God with a loud voice, and he threw himself on Jesus' feet. I love to wonder at the things that don't matter much. So I wonder, how far away was he? In two steps? What do you think? Yeah, half a mile away? Three miles? Ten miles? How far did he get before they began? How many steps did they have to take before their skin began to clear up? How far did they go? I think not very far. That's my guess. doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. But I think it wasn't that far. And he began to look. And nine of his buddies had the exact same experience that he did. A step that maybe a sore went away with every step. I have no idea. Maybe it all went away once, just like that. But this man looked at his skin and was so overcome with gratitude. How long did he go and press down? How long did he felt ostracized and passed down? How long had he been this way? And now he is overwhelmed. And he says he came back to Jesus' feet and the blood. So very important word. That word thanks in the Greek is this word here. If you were saying. And you know this word and so many implications for followers of Jesus. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we celebrate the what? The Eucharist. We call it the Eucharist because when Jesus held up the bread, it says that he came over it, he broke it, and he ate. He gave thanks. This is the very word he used. Eucharisteo. This is what it means to give thanks. Nestled in the middle of this word is the word charis. Which means grace, a gift of grace. And this leper who is healed now feels this gift of grace bestowed upon him, and he returns and he gives a gift of grace back to Jesus. He comes back and says, Thank you. I don't know how this works in the gospel, and I don't know why, and I wish God had done it differently. But apparently, there was a very close relationship between suffering and gratitude. Do you understand this? I have no idea why this is the case. But they are inextricably linked, suffering and gratitude. And it's in this moment when Jesus says, I know what is about to happen to me, and he breaks his bread, knowing that in their hours he would experience the pain and the struggle of the crucifixion, and he eucharisteos, he gives thanks. And it's one man, healed 
sins were made unclean by the thoughts that come out of our heart. I stand condemned. Were it not for the saving death of Jesus on the cross, I would not have any understanding what love is. So I believe that of all the things Jesus saved me from, at the top of the list, is He saved me from me. Thank you.